God and trying to figure it all out on our own. And my default and probably your default too is to stew over things. And I'm learning that stillness is a much better way to experience the peace of God. There's a group of people known as the Desert Fathers. Desert because they lived in the desert. Surprise, surprise. And fathers because they began a movement. And in about the 3rd, 4th century, there were some uh, men who left the busyness of their homes and went into the deserts in and around Egypt and Syria. And they made for themselves a lifestyle focused around God. And part of what they did between their working was to have regular times of stillness throughout the day. And they learned a lifestyle practice where putting aside the things of the world, they lived lives centered on God. And it's what we all want. Um, I'm going to guess that the majority of you watching or uh, here in person cannot sell everything you have, drop what you're doing, and go find some solitary place to move away from uh, to for the rest of your lives to focus your life on God. I'm going to guess that's true. But what they have learned in their they're fathers in the sense that that's what began the monastic life. So monks, monasteries, that type of life, that's where it began, in caves. And eventually was adopted into a pattern. And it's important for us to learn some of those patterns, some of the principles that Jesus taught. Peace isn't just um, something that we talk about at, at, at Christmas for no good reason. It's central to our Christmas theme because it's so needed in our world, and it's so a central part of the Christmas narrative. And so today, we're going to fly through a lot of Scripture. So uh, if you've got your Bibles, be ready. You can watch it on the, on the screen. If you've got your Bible app, as Kara said, you can look for Country Hills Church event, and all the Scriptures will be there so you can look for yourself. But what I want to do is move through some of the biblical narrative and, and prophecy and throughout the Bible and spot where peace is. So first of all, we can understand peace. It's great. Secondly, I want to kind of know how do we get peace? How do we receive peace? And thirdly, how do we experience it? Because several understand peace. Lots of people understand the concept of peace. And by the time you leave this morning, I hope you will. Uh, fewer than that receive it. And fewer still experience it to the fullness of what God wants. We all need peace. We absolutely need peace. Think of your life. Think of the lives around you. Think of the kind of normal North American, Canadian way we live our life and we're busy and hurried and we've got all sorts of stuff going on. I know we need peace, especially after these few years of pandemic. And now, there was, a, there was a study that was, came out in August uh, of this year, just a few months ago, a Canadian study where almost 23,000 people were surveyed, Canadians. And they were looking primarily at anxiety, depression, and psychological disorders. In light of COVID-19, what had that done to us as a nation? There is lots of data there, lots of stuff I can't begin to even understand. I don't have a psychology degree, but the summary I can understand. And the summary is important for us to know. Here's what they found out about Canadians. 25% of the people surveyed. So 23,000 people is a pretty good cross-section it's a pretty good study. It's not like 100 people <laughs> polled and survey says or something like that. 25% of people uh, reported that they have low to moderate mental health difficulties. So 25% of people uh, are beyond the normal ups and downs of life. So this isn't like 25% of people are, you know, we have some down days. But this is people who are 
need to actively seek some help. So low to moderate. 9% have severe. Uh, and so there's 34%-ish of Canadians who cannot cope or deal with anxiety, depression, psychological disorders on their own. It's beyond the everyday ups and downs and lows that everyone goes through. So I know that we need it. Now, a lot of people think that the Bible is outdated, irrelevant. And most of the people, especially I find like online or, or um, you know, on TV, they pick out these little cross sections of scripture and, and they don't really look at the whole. And we are going to look at a whole bunch of things to judge scripture by scripture today. And here's what I think. I don't think it's irrelevant at all. If that's the data, if that's the truth, then a Christmas narrative where angels come, and that takes a leap to believe that. Angels come and announce, guess what God is doing? He's coming to bring peace on earth. Peace to your troubled hearts. Peace to your troubled minds. He's come to bring something you desperately need. And so I think this is very relevant tonight. So what, uh, tonight, it's dark in here, today. Um, what is peace? Because we can all kind of bring our own um, definition of peace, what peace means to us. But I think it's important to look at the Old and New Testament and kind of get an idea. Now, the Old Testament word for peace, uh, the typical, the most used word is shalom. Some of you will know it. It's used as a Jewish greeting still and was in that day. It has to do with um, completeness, soundness, well-being. It also meant uh, good welfare, prosperity, um, wholeness, the end of war and hostility. So a lot is held in there. But it's a relational word, and it really had to do with God and people and between people. And really the heart of it has to do with love and loyalty. So a good summary of the word uh, shalom or the term peace in the Old Testament is this sense of completeness. That God gives us a, his peace so we can be complete in him and harmonious, in harmony with him. And it's due to his love to us and his loyalty to us. And we experience that as we return love and have loyalty in following him. So shalom is the sense of completeness and harmony in a relationship of love and loyalty. And then that's echoed between people so that the people of the Old Testament would greet one another with shalom. It was a desire to see God's peace reign in their heart and that that peace would be between them. It goes beyond that. Uh, uh, a good way to uh, understand it is seen in uh, Joseph. So Joseph was uh, a biblical uh, character. His brothers betrayed him, sold him into slavery. Eventually, God puts him into a place of blessing and power, and he has opportunity to turn the tables on them. And instead of doing that, he grants them shalom. He says, may God's peace be with you. Don't be afraid. We're good. And so there's, there's a lot packed into there. Included in that idea of shalom is God's way of relating to his people in general. And so the way God relates to people is through a covenant. There's many covenants. It's not a contract. It's a, it's a relational uh, agreement. It's, it's a way to bond people together. And, and that's what a marriage is. A marriage is a covenant. And so covenants in the Old Testament were known as covenants of peace between God and people. People who've sinned against God, but God who's come and done everything necessary to right that relationship. And in, uh, in one of the first covenants we see with Abraham, God does all everything necessary in the typical covenant that would be made at the historical time between two neighbors or families. God does it all. Abraham does none. 
God does it all. Between neighbors, you do two parts, halves of this ritual and think, God does it all. And so God is giving his peace and his shalom so that we might be at peace with him. We see this in a really neat way because God's shalom to the Israelites wasn't that they were out of trouble. And, and our Advent reading had a number of times mentioned trouble. And the reason God's a bit different is his peace isn't just ending trouble. We're going to get into that in a little bit more detail. But Psalm 23, probably one of the most well-known psalms, you probably uh, know it. The Lord is my shepherd. And David talks about being led by God beside quiet streams and, and, and lush meadows. It's a metaphor. Uh, even while he's near the shadow of death. He talks about God making a feast in the presence of his enemies. God's peace comes to us even in the middle of trouble. And that's important to remember. So the Israelites would say peace to you as shalom. They would say a farewell, may you go in peace. They would use it of close friends and they would call a close friend a person of peace. Shalom was a big deal in the Old Testament. And all of those themes are echoed and added onto. Actually, they're not added onto. They go deeper in the New Testament. So that the greetings you find in many of Paul's letters and, and the way the people of the way, that's what first Christians were called, people of the way would often greet each other, was shalom, yes, peace, but grace. Because grace is, is the, the gospel summed up. That God would do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And we receive it by faith. And so they would bless one another saying, may you know God's peace that you experience through his grace. And you receive through faith. So that they, they'd say grace and peace to you. Um, and they wouldn't call close friends a person of peace. They, they modified that. And they would say that while you're evangelizing or witnessing, and, and Jesus said this, and we find this in the book of Acts, when someone was receptive to the gospel, they were known as a person of peace. They were receiving God's peace. Peace is a bigger deal, I think, than we make it throughout uh, the Bible. Let me give you uh, three quick New Testament verses um, from Paul how we know that peace is central. Romans 15, 13. This is a great Advent uh, verse, by the way. I pray that God, the source of hope, so we looked at hope last week, will fill you completely with joy. We'll look at joy next week. And peace this week because you, why? You trust in him. You have faith in him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Peace is important. Paul is praying that they would know God's peace completely. Philippians 4, 6-7. We're going to come back to this verse several times, although not specifically we're going to refer to it. So tuck this one away as we continue to move through Scripture. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Don't worry about anything. Instead, instead of being troubled and stewing, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank Him for all He's done. Then you will experience what? God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace, what does it do? It guards your hearts and your minds. We're going to come back to that hearts and minds thing. Colossians 3.15. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. See? Paul is talking again. It's God's peace is not this ethereal um, concept or a lack of war in the world and give peace a chance and all these high meaning, low action terms and words. It's an active thing in our hearts. For as members of one body, you to live in peace. We are called to live in peace with one another as his body, as his temple, as a church. Followers of Jesus are to be at peace with God, because we are through Jesus and with one another another and always be thankful many understand peace 
Fewer still receive it. Fewer still experience peace. And I want you, I hope, over this Christmas season to experience God's peace in a real, lasting, and deeper way. So let's look at the Christmas narrative. We're going to hop through some different pieces of the Christmas narrative to see where peace is central, to see if we can't pick through what is this peace, how do we receive it, and how do we experience it. Let's start with some prophecy. Zechariah is John the Baptist's father. And so John the Baptist is a relative of Jesus. He was uh, prophesied that someone would come and pave the way for Jesus. And there we find in the Gospels that John is baptizing people. Hence, John the Baptist. He wasn't born with that. Zechariah and Elizabeth didn't name him John the Baptist. And then they taught him to baptize. We know him as that because he baptized people to prepare them for the Messiah, for Jesus to come. And eventually, Jesus does come. And so there's prophecies about John who would pave the way for Jesus, and there's prophecies about Jesus himself, the Messiah. And Zechariah himself prophesies about both the Messiah and his son and their connection together after, you know, he knows he's having this miraculous birth. They couldn't have children until later life, Zechariah. And so he says this in Luke 1, Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and redeemed his people. He has sent us a mighty Savior from the royal line of his servant David. So there's a prophecy piece about the Messiah, about Jesus Christ. Jesus was uh, born king in the line of David, David the greatest king uh, who Israel ever had. And then a few verses later in verse 79, uh, the prophecy continues to say what kind of a son that John would have the titles or the things that John would do. And about John, his son, he said, my little son, you will be called to, verse 79, give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, calling back to Psalm 23, and to guide us where? In the path of peace. Where did John point people? Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. Part of Jesus' way, part of the way of Jesus is a way, a path of peace. We are meant to live lives of peace. We're to be at peace with God. We're to have peace. It shouldn't be surprising that only a few verses later in Luke's account, in chapter 2, probably the most famous portion of Scripture about the Christmas narrative, we find this in verse 13 and 14. Suddenly, the shepherds are on the hillside, middle of the night, Angels show up. Suddenly the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven. So they're worshiping God. And peace on earth to those with whom he is pleased. Uh, older translation on those whom God has favor. What does that mean? God's peace would come to those with whom he's pleased and those who he has favor upon. Who is he pleased with? Who does he have favor on? Anyone who received his offer of salvation and grace through faith. His favor rests on them. His favor is offered to everyone, but only rests on those who receive it. And he's pleased. He loves everyone, but man, he's pleased with his people just because we are his. And so the angels come and announce, there's a new time of peace. Glory to God in the highest, and there's going to be peace on earth through the one who will be born. That's based on Another name of Jesus, maybe you know it, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. For a child is born to us, 
A son will be given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called these things. Jesus will be known as these things. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Now, prince is supposed to bear resemblance and um, the authority of the father. Now, when it comes to Jesus, prince is a kind of a more human term because Jesus is fully God and fully human, separate and connected, one but unique in his calling as part of the Trinity. And so, as prince, he bears all the characteristics of the father, of the king. And because God is a God of peace, this prince will be a prince of peace. It gets way better in verse 7. His government, this prince, when he's reigning, this is what his reign, his kingdom will be like. His government, and it's what? Peace. The Jews were looking for a, a powerful person to overthrow the Romans, restore the glory of Israel, restore their borders. But God had something better in mind. And he says, his government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice. How many would vote for a candidate, right? Like a prime minister in Canada who ruled with peace, uh, fairness, and justice. That would be wonderful, Right? Jesus is one who is like that. And from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity, the passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's armies will make this happen. God is so committed to this, he makes it happen. How many of you believe we are living in a kingdom of peace right now? No? Well, you're right. Because Jesus' kingdom is now and not yet. When he came, he established his kingdom forever. And one day, that's his first advent. Advent season is looking back to his first coming. That's all that advent means, coming. And we look forward to his second coming. He established a kingdom of peace then that's not yet fulfilled. Jesus' kingdom is now and not yet. And his kingdom of peace is now and not yet. It's everlasting. So why don't we see it? We actually do. Because Jesus establishes in the hearts of his people his subjects, the people he died for, those who willingly choose to be a part of his family, of his kingdom, his peace reigning in their hearts. That through our lives experiencing peace from God, practicing peace with one another, the whole world might experience peace through us. Not through a king who sits on a physical throne and overthrows everyone and makes them. Isn't that the way our culture is, right? Someone who feels something is wrong eventually gets into power and makes it happen to the exclusion of all others. My views, my opinions, my rights, and everything else is wiped out. Jesus is a way better king. And one day he will return and he will establish a physical kingdom. I don't know what all is held in the millennium and if you don't know what the millennium is, we can talk later. But there is some sort of reign of Christ on earth before the new heavens and the new earth part of his everlasting kingdom. And eventually he reigns forever and his peace is forever. And it's now, but it's not yet. It's here, but it's not fully here. But it reigns in our hearts. And as we look back, again, another piece of prophecy, and you may know this, Micah 5.2. You probably know this if you're churched or you've been to Advent services for several years. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, are only a small village among the people of Judah. 
Yet a ruler of Israel whose origins are in the distant past will come from you on my behalf. Don't show in the next verse yet. Okay? So, that's the part we kind of know. And it was the Jewish leaders who knew this prophecy when King Herod, the wicked King Herod, he wanted to know where is this king come? The wise men show up and say, where's the king of the Jews in Jerusalem? And Herod is going, I'm a Roman. We've overthrown the Jews. I'm the only king that matters. Tell me where the... Like, where is this king supposed to be born? And they look at this prophecy and they say, Bethlehem. And oftentimes, me included, that's it. I end at verse 2 and I'm like, what a wonderful thing. God predicted hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus was born that he'd be born exactly in Bethlehem. And this is such a wonderful prophetic fulfillment. And I miss the most important part. First part of verse 5. And he will be a source of peace. Great that Jesus was born in Bethlehem proves who he is. It's wonderful. But man, for me and my life today, the fact that he's the source of peace, that's a way bigger deal. And so we have all these hints and prophetic words pointing towards Jesus. And then we fast forward to the night that Jesus was betrayed. The night before he was crucified. And he's got a short window of time to spend with his disciples. He's gone in the upper room. He's washed their feet. He's taken their Passover celebration and turned it on its head and turned it into what we would say is the Lord's Supper or communion. That this new covenant, this relational agreement, the way we are made at peace with God is fulfilled in a new way. It's in his body, in his blood. And as he's moving from that upper room, over to the garden where he'd be captured. He's teaching, teaching, teaching important things. And in John 14, he says this to his disciples, some of his final words. I am leaving you. What? But I'm leaving you with a gift. I'm giving you peace of mind, peace of heart. Remember Paul in Philippians? Uh, the peace of God will guard your hearts and your mind. I'm giving you peace of mind and peace of heart. And the peace I give is a gift the world cannot give. So don't be troubled and afraid. That's such a key part to understanding the peace of God through Jesus Christ. How we understand, receive, and experience it. So let's unpack that a bit. Peace is first and foremost a gift. Peace is not something you can work into. Although there's things you can do to best receive it. You can get yourself in proximity with Jesus. But it is a gift. It's his the gift. He's the prince of peace. He's the pathway to peace. He's the source of peace. True and lasting peace only comes through him because he doesn't give as the world gives. It's a unique gift. So it's a re gift received from God through Jesus. In fact, in Galatians, Paul writes that peace is one of the fruit of the Spirit. After John 14, where Jesus says this, he talks in John 15, he says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you stay connected in me and get your food and your life source from me, I'll bear fruit through you. And Paul calls that out in Galatians and said, one of the fruit that is grown out of you, gifted to you and brought from your life as you're in proximity to Jesus and become more like him, as you experience this peace, he'll bring peace out of your life so that all people might experience the peace of God through his people, even without a military force. Or, or a one world order where Jesus is in charge and, and the conservatives are going to finally win and, and push down all the other opposing things. That's not the way Jesus works. Because he doesn't give the way the world gives. The 
only way the world knows how to have peace is to end trouble. And there's never, ever been lasting peace in the world. Ever. It's always temporary. There's always new trouble. Look at your life. You've likely never had everlasting peace because we live in a world that's broken and troubled. And Jesus says, so don't be troubled or afraid. I'm giving you this unique gift. I'm giving in a way that the world can't give. Don't be troubled or afraid. He gives this peace to our troubled hearts, our feelings. He gives this gift of peace to our mind, our troubled thoughts. When we stew about things and we don't know what to do, and when we're feeling it and we don't know what to do, Jesus' peace is there to do more in our hearts and lives than we could ever ask or imagine. Trouble and peace are mentioned together all the time. All the time. And it's because Jesus does something different. Jesus is powerful enough to get rid of all trouble in our lives. Get rid of all trouble in the world. Push it aside. And, and that's what Israel really wanted in the promised land. Like we've got these borders and we're living in here and no one should attack us and God should help us and we'll be at peace and we'll follow God. What did they do? Man, they never had lasting peace. They were following idols and doing all sorts of stuff despite having this idea of a government who would ensure peace. It didn't work. A temple who would ensure peace didn't work. Priests who would make you have peace didn't work. Didn't work. But Jesus has a lasting peace. And Jesus drops his peace right into the middle of your trouble. Psalm 23. In the middle of the valley of the shadow of death, boom, he brings his peace. In the presence of your enemies, boom, he brings peace that you can eat in the presence of your enemies. In the middle of your troubled heart and things going on in your life, he brings his peace. Even if the trouble doesn't end, you can have his peace. And that peace, like light, overcomes and overwhelms the darkness. And that's just what Jesus came to do 2,000 years ago. Now and not yet. He came to rule and reign as the prince of peace over a people of peace who can have peace between themselves and God, who can have peace between themselves and others at peace with God, and who can share that peace that passes understanding, that calms your troubled hearts and your troubled minds in a greater way than ever. Imagine if you had set up the Christmas narrative. How, how, how would you do it? Probably not the way God did it, right? Announcing to shepherds. There were nobodies. They were like lowest of the low. Uh, probably not during a season where the wicked King Herod, okay, here's how little he valued people compared to God, right? He said, I don't care what you're doing. Drop everything. Go to your ancestral homes, and I ain't count you up. You are a number to me. I want to see how many people I have. And then when he finds out there's this other king, he goes, oh, it's in Bethlehem, eh? Yeah, let's not bother f searching for the child. We'll just kill every baby under about two, every boy, and that should about deal with it. And an angel comes to Joseph in a dream. Peace in the trouble. And Joseph and Mary flee to Egypt, safe, come back to Nazareth. God's peace always reigns in the middle of our trouble. We don't have to push trouble out of the way, although sometimes that happens. When God's peace really spreads, man, it's, it's, it's viral. 
And it does more than we can do in our best efforts, in our best tools, in our best ways of being. God was doing something new and he's doing it still. So how on earth can we as individuals and households understand, receive, and experience peace? Well, the best way I know is taken from several psalms. And in the psalms we hear again and again and again in the middle of trouble, right in the middle of trouble, be still and know that I am God. So here's the way I know to experience peace. Be still and know God to experience peace. Be still and know God. If Jesus is the source of peace, if he's the pathway of peace, if he's truly the prince of peace, if he has set up a never-ending, everlasting kingdom of peace that's now and not yet, that he can implant in our hearts and grow in our lives, but we're not yet experiencing it, it's probably us. It's probably me and not God. And I likely have just simply not been in the right place to receive So first of all, there has to be an intentional willingness to receive peace. We live such hurried, busied, leadership-driven lives. Self-help, get on top of it. There's there's a lot to be said about being a self-made man or woman. There's a lot to be said about getting on top of your stuff. And lots of people, you know, tame their dragons over time and make something of themselves. But it's never lasting. And Jesus doesn't want us to, to be in the middle of all this trouble. and Keep trying, trying, trying. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But never having lasting peace. Always at the edges, we're pushing it away. Right in our heart, we're trying. Because we want what the world gives. We want the peace as the world gives. Peace in the world is an end of trouble. It can't do it. It tries to do it through power and position, and politics, and if we just stop this behavior, then we can have peace. And there's a real kind of theology in our culture that there's this way to have kind of this utopian. If we would just accept certain things and do certain things in our culture, we get rid of all these evils and ills, and and we can do this together. It's a great idea. Won't work. (laughs) Can't work because we're human. We're sinful. We're broken. But God comes into our brokenness. He makes us new. And he plants his peace at the center of our lives. That his peace can reign. In the same way he reigns over the world, his peace reigns over our hearts. And for you and me, it's much harder for his peace to impact our lives than it is to sit and say, hey, these angels announcing this peace, I want God to be, you know, peace over the world. I want lasting peace in the world. It is difficult. Stillness, silence, sitting with God, getting in God's presence, is such a powerful tool. And in my journey of um, you know, coming close to God and following Him, I went through a real long number of years. First, where I just was like, eh, I'll kind of do some devotions, and that should do it. And then I realized, yeah, that doesn't quite cut it. I need to grow more. And so I would do so much. And, and, and that's still good. I still do a lot. Uh, but for a number of years... I, I just kind of held the responsibility, trying to end troubles, trying to be better, trying to do more for God, trying to earn his love. And over the past number of years, I just realized that he just loves me. And he just wants me to have his peace. And in all this striving, I'm actually pushing him away. 
We still have work to do. We still have striving. We still have to overcome things. There's, there's stuff for us to do. God saved us by his grace. We receive through faith because he's got stuff for us to do. He just does. But stillness, presence, be still and know. Shutting things off and being alone with God. There's at least three things it does for us. First of all, it helps us receive his love. We can't receive his love when we're running, running, running. And for me, a lot of my running, running, running is God's stuff. Church stuff. Spiritual stuff. Still doesn't do it. It's still trouble. It's still busy. It's still harried. It's still not God. Secondly, it helps me surrender. I have a will. I want God to do things my way because I have a certain way. And if you're honest too, you probably have a way that you want God to, to work things out and you pray that way and that's okay. He says, ask what you want. But he has a will. And until I submit my will to him and receive his love, man, I will not have or experience his peace. And the third thing it does is it helps us listen to his voice. We can't hear God when all we have is busy and loud. And sometimes our busy and loud is devotional book and church conference and all this kind of stuff. And, and you've you got to train your heart to be still. As we close, go back to these desert fathers again. There's a desert father known as Father or Abba Anthony. And in order to understand this quote I'm going to read you, you won't see it on the, on the screen, you just have to listen. Uh, you have to understand his language, the language of the day. And when they talk about a cell, he's not talking about a prison, okay? A cell in those days in that language was a quiet, private place. Not the physical place, the place in your life where you went to be with God. Just as fish die if they stay too long out of water, so the monks who loiter outside their cells, so the rooms in their quiet times, so it's kind of physical and in your heart, so the monks who loiter outside their cells or pass their time with men of the world lose the intensity of inner peace. It's something we have to go back to again and again. Not just daily, throughout the day. So, like a fish going towards the sea, we must hurry to reach our cell for fear that if we delay outside, we will lose our interior watchfulness. We need to go again and again to our quiet place of our hearts. Learn to shut down, shut off, receive his love, listen to him, and submit our will. When we do that, in that quietness, it creates a trust in which peace is birthed and grows in a way we can't manufacture, we can't earn, and not the most devout follower of Jesus with memorization and preaching and doing whatever you think is a spiritual activity can gain that peace through anything else other than quiet before God. Be still and know. God to experience peace. It's going to take intention. It's going to take challenge. So here's my invitation to you as we close today. Last week, we spoke about hope. And the encouragement was to share and extend a sense of home, especially here within our church family, a welcome, a kindness, welcoming people in so that we might extend hope. So today, as we talk about peace, I'm going to make this a, a lot more um, personal. And I encourage you 
to take moments of stillness to receive and experience peace. Find your place. Find your time. Make it happen. It's challenging. So we, we've done an eight-week group on emotionally healthy spirituality. We've been doing... Uh, it's, it's done now, but we challenged ourselves with silence. And so as we met as a group, we started the first week with about 30 seconds of silence and moved up to a minute and then moved to two minutes. And our last week we did four minutes. This is not Eastern meditation, you know, quietness. Empty yourself to be one with the universe. And that kind of stuff is uh, counterfeit God stuff. It's half-truths and lies. It opens you up to dark spiritual forces and all sorts of mess. When you are still with God, you are shutting everything off in your heart, in heart, in your heart and your mind so that you're filled with God's presence. He fills the universe and he loves you. If he came and spoke to shepherds and he called wise men and he, as Prince of Peace, Jesus is in your heart and he wants to fill you with the gift of his peace in a way the world cannot give so that your troubled heart and your troubled mind enter your day and throughout your day, you bring it to him. Here's my trouble. Here's my trouble. Here's my trouble. Here's my trouble. And you learn to be still and silent. You learn to receive his love. You learn to submit your will. You learn to listen to his voice, pushing everything aside, even if the trouble externally or internally doesn't end in that moment. His peace will overcome so I invite you to experience the peace of Jesus. The peace of God that guards your heart and your mind. Not that comes in and overthrows trouble and everything's good. Bring God your dreams. He'll fulfill them. Come to church. We're going to do all that for you. If you just bring your heart's dreams. We have some preaching like that. And I think it's false. <laughs> At least I haven't experienced that. So if you've got a better way, hey, I... I sign up for that because it's way easier to go to God and have him fulfill my dreams than for me to come again and again and through a long process of stillness and silence, him to shape and form me into who he knows me to be already and have my life at peace with him and the people around me so that his kingdom that is now and not yet, I'm living in the fullness waiting for his second advent. And so this second Sunday of Advent, may you know, may you receive, and may you experience God's peace. Let's pray. Father, I think we're a lot like Israel, who, man, your, your peace seemed to elude them they wandered from you and looked to kings and all the wrong stuff to bring peace. God, I think we look in the wrong places and I think we understand your peace in the wrong way. But may that change. Father, if there are those listening this morning who have never believed in Jesus Christ, who've never received his grace and his peace, I ask that you would work in their lives, that that simple decision to follow you uh, would happen even today. For the ones who are listening this morning and, and 
in all honesty, saying, man, you do not know the trouble I'm in. May your peace reign in ways they can't even imagine as we align our lives and learn to be still with you. May we be filled to all the fullness of your peace this Advent season, and may we see your kingdom come. We look forward to your coming again. And until you do, may we spread and share this peace that people desperately need. But may we receive and experience it first. May we receive and extend it here first. And may there be a different quality to our lives as we learn to be still and know you are God and experience your peace. In Jesus' wonderful name I pray. Amen. Amen. Happy second week of Advent. I hope that your Christmas season is going well. Thanks for joining us. If you're in person, if you're able to stack the chairs and groups of 10, that'd be wonderful. Online, thanks for joining us. And hope to see you again next week for our third week of Advent where we look at joy. Lord bless you as you go. Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the ones in need, for every thirst and every hunger, you are everything. Blessed are the worn and weary, blessed are the ones who grieve, in every moment unexpected, you are everything. Seek you is to find you, and to know you is to want you, and I want nothing more than you. To see you is to love you, and I can't believe